same as you. So you know that uh, thing that happens when, you, when you're on a different wavelength to someone and you think you've been really clear about something and they have just completely not understood. They think in a totally different way. That, in a very small way, is what we are like with God. He does not think. So I think we assume that God is basically just a big human being in the sky and that he basically just thinks the same way we do. He's just a little bit cleverer than us. Whereas Isaiah 55 says, no, no, it's a completely different world. God doesn't even begin to think the same as you think. His thoughts are so different to your thoughts and his ways so different to your ways. That means we're going to have a big wavelength problem when it comes to God. We're going to find ourselves often on a different wavelength. We're going to find often that there is a clash between what I think and what God thinks, between his ways and my ways. They smash into one another. Now, I think that's a problem for us, right? Because we love finding people who agree with us. Isn't it good when you find someone who agrees? You know, you've got some... I love having an argument with someone who agrees with me. You know, when you're discussing some issue of politics, which I don't often do, but, you know, let's, let's take the EU referendum. Here's me with my view, and here's someone else who has the same view as me. We have such a happy conversation about how wrong everybody else is. It feels good. We like it when people agree with us, people who reinforce what we think. It's comforting to find someone who will say what we want to hear. I think this is the principle that lies behind imaginary friends. You know, an imaginary friend is someone who will always agree with me and who will tell me what I want to know. I, that's, I don't have imaginary friends anymore. But you get my point. My mum had an imaginary friend. She was called Mrs. Robinson and she lived up a tree. I think she doesn't live there anymore. But the point is, someone who we can just who just is there and they kind of just agree with us. We don't have to argue. It's not difficult. There's no problem. Not like difficult relationships where people might disagree. And for many, that's what we want with God. We want a God who's basically just an imaginary Mrs. Robinson, who sits up a tree in heaven and who we sometimes go, oh God, I'm thinking of doing this. And he says, oh, that sounds like a wonderful thing to do. Oh, thank you very much, God. And he's simply there to say nice things and to say precisely what I want to hear. Now that happens, and tragically that happens in churches with preachers and the Bible. So this is how it works. You go through the Bible and you think, oh, I like that. That's really nice. That makes me feel really lovely. I like that. We'll have that. Now, let's see what I... Ah. No don't like that. I I think I've got a better idea. That doesn't fit with what I want it to say. You get the point, right? We find ourselves on a different wavelength to God and we can easily read the Bible, picking out the stuff we like and rejecting the stuff that we don't agree with. But that is to completely misunderstand God. When God sets out his ways and we say, God, I've got a better idea. How about we go this way? That is to completely misunderstand who God is. Do you know, we should expect that when we really hear the voice of God, we will not always agree. If you've always sat in church, 
and always thought, yes, I, I, that's exactly what I think. Yep, I think that too. I think that and that. I would suggest you possibly have never really heard the voice of God. Because his ways are not our ways. And if all he's ever done is tell you how wonderful and lovely and beautiful and everything is good, actually I suggest you've never truly heard the voice of God. How many times do we read stuff in the Bible and think, actually, I think I've got a better idea. Do you know, that was true for Jesus' disciples. We've been learning a lot about Jesus' disciples in Mark's Gospel. We've seen them learning from Jesus. And we've seen again and again, they keep being hit with things. They go, whoa, hang on a second. That's what we're going to see again this afternoon. So have a look at, we're actually going to pick up from verse 31, okay? Mark chapter 8, verse 31. We're going to get a run up into verse 34. Look how Mark chapter 8, verse 31 starts. He then, that's Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. He then began to teach them. So, let's just uh, work out exactly where we are. This is a very important point in Mark's Gospel. This is like the hinge of Mark's Gospel. This is the moment in Mark's Gospel when it all kind of changes. They've just understood, this was last week, right? If you were here last week, you probably won't remember, but let's pretend you do. Last week, we had that amazing declaration when Peter said, you are the Messiah. It was back in verse uh, 28. It was like a massive you're the Messiah, you're the King, you're the one I'm pinning all my hope on. We saw that last week, you're the Messiah. That was a, that was a big moment in Mark's Gospel. Verse 31, he then, now that they understand he's the Messiah, he then began to teach them many things. Do you see? You see, he told them, right, you got that I'm the Messiah, but don't tell anyone. That was the end of verse that was verse 30. It's weird, isn't it? Jesus warned, don't tell anyone about this. Why? Because they haven't got a clue what that means yet. They do not have a clue what it means to be the Messiah. That's what he's now going to teach them. And Jesus is going to teach them that he is going to do something so utterly different to what they would ever imagine that Peter is going to be so shocked by it, he's going to say, no, Jesus, I think I've got a better idea. That's what we're going to see. Jesus is going to set out the road that he's going to walk. We're going to call it the King's Road. Jesus is going to set out, this is the road that the Messiah is going to walk down. This is the King's Road. Peter doesn't like it. And neither will we. But we need to listen to Jesus. So let's have a look. Um, at this king's road and we're going to see very clearly that God's ways are not our ways so let me uh, pick up verse 31 again here's four things that mark the king's road right this is the four things that mark the king's road he then began to teach them that the son of man that's another name for the messiah uh, it's, it's a name that is full of power and glory there's an amazing passage in Daniel chapter 7 where the Son of Man is the one who's given all authority and all glory and all the nations worship him. It's an incredible picture. That's the Son of Man. It's like a code name for the Son of Man, uh, for, for glory. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days 
rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Here's the four things that mark the king's road. Just straight out the passage. It's not difficult. Here are the four things. Suffering, rejection, death, and glory. That's the king's road. That's the road Jesus says he's going to walk down. And I want you to notice something very clearly. He doesn't say, unfortunately, lads, uh, it just turns out that people aren't going to like me very much. And I've got to, unfortunately, I've got to go down this road. He says that he must do this. I must suffer many things. I must be rejected. I must die. It's weird, isn't it? For this great king, this great powerful king who can heal the sick and raise the dead, and yet he needs to suffer, be rejected, and die. Why does Jesus say he must do this? I want you to keep a a finger in... um, Mark chapter 8. And I want you to turn back to Isaiah 53, which is a passage which is just staggering. Uh, It's on page 741. Page 741. Okay. So, Isaiah chapter 53. Now, in the book of Isaiah, which was written 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah says there's going to be someone who comes. There's going to be someone who comes who's going to be the Messiah, the King. And it says stuff like this. You'll recognize, this is from Isaiah 9, you'll recognize this. Uh, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Oh, it's Christmas. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and kingdom, there will be no end. Okay? He will reign on David's throne forever. So there's this one coming, a child who's going to be born, who's going to be uber powerful, who's going to have a kingdom that lasts forever. That's the, that's the Messiah, right? And you read tons about him in, in the book of Isaiah until you get to Isaiah 53. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 53. Um, and let's go from verse 1. And if these verses are familiar to you, I want you to look at them again, okay? Let's not switch off. Let's engage with what we're being told in Isaiah about this one, this mighty king who's going to come, who's mighty God, everlasting Father, powerful, powerful, Have a look at chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He is the same figure, grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, this is the road I must walk. And those steps, all of those steps are laid out in Isaiah chapter 53. That's the Isaiah 53 road. That's the king's road. Do you notice, and this only twigged this week, all right? And so forgive me, this is probably really obvious. But when Jesus said to his disciples that the Messiah must suffer many things, be rejected and die, I think I'd always read that suffering as just being the cross. 
that, you know, basically, Jesus had this really nice, it was a fairly easy ride for Jesus. Oh, tough couple of days. You know, he had a bad couple of days. But basically, up until then, life had been pretty good. Was actually, Jesus says, no, I suffer many things. He's not just talking about the cross. Isaiah 53, listen to this. He's a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Isn't that an interesting phrase? He knows what it's like to live in a world of pain. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows the frustration of living in this world. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be frustrated. He knew what it was like for friends of his to die, for family members, perhaps his own dad, to die. He knew what it was like. He he was familiar with pain. He suffered many things. He was born to a virgin. He was born into a poor family. He was born into the struggle of real life. He knew what suffering was about. So when you think of Jesus, don't you dare think of Jesus as being some guy who never really had to... He doesn't really know much about it. He doesn't know my life. He doesn't know the struggle I have. Yes, he does. Familiar with pain. A man of suffering. Suffering was the distinctive mark of the life of Jesus, according to Isaiah. And so he suffered in many ways. He was rejected. Rejected by the chief priests and the elders, the very ones who should have welcomed him. And eventually he went to a cross to die. So look at verse, if you're still in Isaiah 53, look at verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is the death, right? This is the crushing of Jesus at the cross. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generations protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he'd done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. This is the king's road. A life of suffering, a life of rejection, culminating in a crushing death. And Jesus says, I must go that way. But notice he also says he's going to rise, which is exactly what Isaiah 53 says. So just look down to verse 11 of Isaiah 53. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. You see, that's the king's road. Suffering, rejection, death, but glory. To rise again and to be given a place of honour. And Jesus says, I must go that way. And can I say this often? If you don't understand why Jesus had to walk that way, let me put it as clearly as I can. 
He had to walk that way. He had to suffer because it was the only way he could save you. He had to die because it's his death which saves you. Because as he died, as Isaiah 53 says, he was crushed instead of me. It was for me. That's the king's road. Let's go back to Mark 8. Here's here's Jesus clearly explaining, and he's going to take the rest of Mark's gospel to explain this. The fact he has to go this road. Look at verse 32. He spoke plainly about this. No misunderstanding. No speaking in riddles. No parables here. Just clear, plain speech. I have to die. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine what's going on in Peter's mind? Come on, can't you, pick, can't you picture yourself a little bit in Peter's mind? Oh, hang on a second, Jesus. I think I've got a better idea. Hang on. I, that's an interesting idea, Jesus. It's an interesting way. I think I've got a better one. How about we skip straight to glory? How about we skip the suffering, rejection and death bit and just go for glory? You can imagine his thinking. Suffering. Look, Jesus, let's face it, mate. You've got a lot of power. You seem to be able to get rid of sickness and death and suffering just like that. There's no need for you to suffer. Rejection. Jesus, the crowds are all around you. They love you. You don't need to be rejected. You could be the world's most popular human being ever. Let's not go for rejection, Jesus. Let's go for... Let's go for popularity. Let's go for success. Let's go for gaining the world. Come on, Jesus. Let's take on the world. Let's take it. It's right there for us. Death. Come on. Let's not go death. Let's go life. It'd be far better to walk that way, Jesus. And it's easy, isn't it, for us to perhaps sit here and go, oh, Peter, how dare you? Who do you think you are talking to Jesus like that? And yet all those times when we've said to Jesus, yeah, it's interesting, Jesus, I've got a better idea. We make exactly the same mistake. When we think that our ways are better than his ways, when we think in some way that we can tell Jesus the right way to go. Look at verse 33. Can I tell you, I think there's something very beautiful in verse 33. I mean, not if you're Peter, obviously. It's a bit embarrassing that this gets recorded for the rest of history, but never mind. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus says, Peter, you are asking me to walk down a road that is not the king's road, but is Satan's road. It is the enemy's road. You're asking me to walk down a different road. Here's my question. Who is he looking at as he rebukes Peter? You see it, can't you? He's looking at his disciples. What is it that says to Jesus, I will not listen to you, Peter? What is it? 
It is when Jesus sees his disciples. He sees his disciples and says, Peter, how can I walk down another road? I have to walk down the king's road. I have to suffer, be rejected and die because of them. It is the love, it is the, it is the sight of his disciples that says, I will not walk a different road. That's what I think is so beautiful. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You see, Satan would love for Jesus to have walked a different road. Satan would love for Jesus not to have gone to the cross. Because then all of humanity would have been lost. All of the disciples would have been lost. And we know from elsewhere that right away from the start of Jesus' ministry, Satan was trying to get him to avoid the cross. Walk a different path, Jesus. Walk a different path. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the world. You don't need to suffer. Turn these stones into bread. You don't need to be hungry, Jesus. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to be rejected. You don't need to die. Just take glory now. And there should be something, if you're a Christian here this afternoon, there should be something in your heart which is blown away and, and is broken by the fact that Jesus refused to walk that way because he wanted to save you. You could read that. Jesus turned and looked at you and said, get behind me, Satan. He had to go to a cross. And any other sort of thinking is merely human thinking. So I hope you can see this massive wonder that Jesus walked this road. I know I've laboured that, and I guess you're probably going, yeah, okay, I've got it. Well, does it cause you to worship? I mean, even as you're sitting here now, is there anything in you that's going, thank you, Jesus? I realise it's hard to do that when you're listening to someone preach, because you know, you've got to try and stick with it. But even as you're listening, just something saying, wow, you did that for me. But once Jesus said this, have a look from verse 34. Jesus then, he sets out this way of the cross. He sets out this, this king's road. And then he's got a lesson for his disciples and for us. So verse 34. Then he calls the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Notice he immediately says, this is the way I must walk, and if anyone is going to follow me, they've got to walk the same way. The same must is there, can you see it? Anyone who wants to be a disciple, a disciple just means someone who's a follower of Jesus. Somebody says, I'm going to learn from you. I'm going to follow in your footsteps, Jesus. Anyone who wants to be a disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. You see, there's something inside me which is saying, I know the road I want to walk. I know the pathway I want to go. It's this sort of road. I want to go down the road of comfort, gain. Uh, forget that. We'll come to that in a second. We'll go first. I want to walk down the road of comfort. An easy life. I mean, most of us want an easy life, don't we? I don't want things to be too tough. I don't want things to be too difficult. 
But Jesus says that you deny yourself and take up your cross. Now, that is such a shocking thing to say. To take up a cross. That is to take up a symbol, an emblem of shame and of death. When you see someone carrying a cross, they're not coming back. It's not kind of, yeah, well, we'll do that for a little while. That's everything. It would be, it would be, more, it would be difficult for Jesus to have said something more shocking to his hearers. Now, we don't see crucifixions. We, we don't see them paraded around on the streets. But in those days, they, would, they knew exactly what a crucifixion was. They knew what it was to carry a cross. And I think sometimes we've kind of sentimentalized the cross. You know that old hymn, um, I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Perhaps you don't know that one. But there's, a, there's an old hymn that goes about, I'll, I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Um, which is a great hymn, actually. It's got great words. But there's a danger that we've almost sentimentalized the cross. It's like, oh, the cross, the cross. It's lovely. I love the cross. I love the cross. Why do we sing we love the cross? It's a horrific thing. We, we can easily sentimentalize. And we can easily think, oh, it's this kind of wonderful thing. Uh, and, or, or maybe we trivialize it and we say something like, um, oh, yeah, that's my cross to bear. I've got a gammy knee, that's my cross to bear. No, it's not. Your cross to bear, if you're going to follow Jesus, is living the whole of your life saying no to what I want, no to self, and to go his way. What's the king's road? A life of suffering, rejection, death, and glory. I want to be as clear as I can. Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, he's calling you to walk that road. This isn't some slushy Christianity that's kind of like tasteless cream cheese that doesn't really have any to it. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) But, you know, it's kind of all nicey-nicey and, you know, it's, oh, Jesus will make your your life nice and Jesus will... Do be really good for you and Jesus will make you feel better about yourself. Jesus says, no, not so much. You follow me, I'll bring suffering, rejection, death. And then glory. And there's a little part of us which screams out, I don't want that. And then Jesus, I think I've got a better idea for my life. How about we go for the cream cheese Christianity, the slightly easier, light version, not the strong, mature cheddar version, which is powerful and strong. (laughs) But look what Jesus says. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow him. You follow him down this road. Verse 35, why? Why should you do this? Because, verse 35, 4, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. If you, that idea of saving your life now, that's about comfort now. That's about now. I want it now. I'm going to save my life now. I'm going to have a good life now. I'm going to get stuff now. It's now, now. 
Jesus says, if that's what your focus is, then ultimately you will lose your life. Literally, it means destroyed. If that's where your focus is, you're trying to hold on to something that you cannot hold on to. And can I say to you, and I guess I'm speaking to those of you who are a lot younger than I am. The danger is that you will discover that life slips through your fingers so fast. And if your life is about trying to hold on to life, it's, you can't. And I see, I, I see older people I know who aren't Christians. And you can see life, this thing that was so precious to them, they've invested everything in this life. It's slipping through their fingers and it's nearly gone. It's nearly gone. They've got a tiny bit left. And you can see the panic. Because they've been all about trying to hold on to life, trying to make this life count, trying to make it worth something. And Jesus says, gone. But if you will lose your life, that means if you will let go of this obsession with have everything now, if you will live your life, not for yourself, but look at it carefully, whoever loses their life, verse 35, for me and for the gospel, will save it. There is a way for life to be saved. It's not by trying to hold on to it. It's actually by letting go. By trusting it to Jesus. By saying, I'm going to live this life not for myself. I'm going to lose it. I'm going to give it up for Jesus. Have a look at verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? I mean, seriously, what good is it to gain the whole world? Well, that sounds pretty good. What have you done with your life? Well, I gained a bit. How much did you gain? I gained the whole world. Good. I had a few people running it. I think that's why we call the Globe Church the Globe Church, because it makes me feel quite powerful when people say to me, how's the globe? <laughs> and I say, well, you know, it's all right. In my role as supreme ruler over all things few issues we're dealing with, but we're okay. To gain the whole world, that's what people are living. That's everything. And Jesus says, what good's that? What a pathetically small way to live your life. What good is that if at the end of it you forfeit your soul? What good is it? Now this, this is important because we have a completely rubbish doctrine of what it means to be a human being. We live in a culture that is obsessed that human beings are just, basically just, matter. And that works its way out. Can I say, you are not just a body. You are a body and a soul. You have a soul. And that soul is precious. That life is precious. You know, we bought into this lie 
that, you know, once I was a tadpole grubbing in the mire until I became ambitious and started to aspire and rubbed my tail most vigorously upon a sunken log and it disappeared completely and I found myself a frog and I climbed out of the puddle onto the dry ground and the feeling that was in me was glorious and grand and it made me kind of frisky and I jumped onto a tree and I spent some eons evoluting and became a monkey. But still I had ambitions as the eons onward spread, so I climbed down from the tree and I walked the earth instead till my tail got tired of traipsing on the hard earth every day. So for the second time in the process, the appendage passed away. Once again I evoluted, and believe me if you can, I awoke one summer's morning and I found myself a man. And we have bought into a lie that says we're just a highly evolved tadpole. That's all you are. And therefore, what your life is all about is about gaining as much as you can now. Jesus says you are more. You are created in the image of God, body and soul, together. There is more to you than simply matter. There is something precious that we must not chuck away. Something that is more valuable than the whole world. Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Your soul matters for eternity. And I have to say to you this afternoon that there is nothing that you can give in exchange for your soul. Nothing that you've gained. Nothing that you will be able to turn up to God and say, look God, I've got all this stuff. Can I exchange that for my soul? Psalm 49 says, the ransom for a life is costly. No one can ever pay enough. You cannot gain enough to pay for your soul. Your soul will be lost for eternity if you have not followed Jesus. Because Jesus came, he walked this road to save you, to save you, body and soul, to save your life. What are you going to give in exchange for your soul, Jesus says? Why would you walk any other road? And we might say suffering and rejection, death, that sounds painful. But Jesus says, you follow my road. And your soul is saved. Verse 38, he spells it out. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, if anyone is ashamed to walk this road, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. Can you imagine the day when Jesus comes and we say, actually Jesus, I didn't walk your way, I thought I had a better way. Jesus says that will be a terrible day. He will be ashamed of us on that day. But for those who followed him, for those who've trusted him, there'll be glory. Now let me just um, wrap this all up um, because we covered loads of stuff and I appreciate we've been talking for a long time. Um, I want to say two things. Firstly, in application, firstly, walking this road does not save you. All right? This is not Jesus saying, you've got to do this and then you can be saved. 
don't know why I'd say it in that voice. But it is not that. Right? Jesus alone saves you. But once you've trusted him, this is the road he calls you to walk. Does, does that make sense? It's very, very important. And the second thing I want to say is that walking this road is about day-to-day life, about the small, little things of day-to-day life. You see, I hear this and I go, right, that's it. We need to go to Bongo, Bongo land and we need to go somewhere overseas I need to go somewhere, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to die. And we read of great stories of Christians who've gone to places and you read them and they're quite inspired, they're very inspiring and challenging. And then you think, oh, I don't want to do that. And we settle back into cream cheese, Christianity. Can I say to you that actually this is, to, this is tomorrow, I mean this is this afternoon, just tiny little things Every single day you are called to die to what you want and to live a life like this. A life that is hard, a life that costs. Perhaps you're a son or a daughter. Well, you are a son or a daughter. (laughs) It's costly, isn't it, to treat your parents in a way which honours them. Perhaps that's a There's all these struggles and battles. You wake up and you've got a clear day and you think, oh, what shall I do today? What will bring me comfort? What will make me happy? How about you ask instead, oh, what can I do today to encourage someone? How can I meet with someone? Can I write a letter to someone? Oh, it's hard work, I don't want it. But it's suffering. Do you know what I mean? Little things. What we do with our money. You know, I I, I don't want to... If you've got any money, <laughs> I, I don't want to, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to give this. I'll, I'll give a, a little bit, kind of, of money because I, I know I'm supposed to, but nothing that's really going to cost me. It's nothing that's going to really affect my life. We live in such an indulgent, comfort-driven, gain-driven culture. Jesus says, "Walk that. Don't walk that road. Don't walk the road of make as much money, make, get as much power." Now, please, don't hear me saying that you shouldn't have a great career. You should. If you're brilliant at making money, make lots of money. If you're a good businessman, seriously, or businesswoman, or business whatever, make lots of money. But as you make lots of money, walk down this road where you give it generously. I don't want us to have small ambitions If you're brilliant at languages, learn a language, become awesome at that language, and then use it to go and to speak to people about Jesus. Whatever it is that you're gifted at, fantastic at, use it to walk this path, not the path of comfort and gain. Deny self and follow Jesus. We're going to, we need to finish, and we're going to pray. But I wonder, I'd love us as a, as a very real response to what we've learned this afternoon, what we've seen this afternoon. What, what would it mean for you to die to yourself tomorrow in order to walk this road? If you're married, it's very obvious. You know, you die every day to what you want in order to serve your husband or wife. If you've got kids, it's even more obvious. <laughs> You die every day 
You see? This is, this is, what, I'm, this is what I mean. But let's pray, and, uh, and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your ways are not our ways. And Lord, even as we've talked this afternoon about these two roads, about the King's Road, and about the road that we would most naturally want to walk. Father, we ask for your forgiveness. Where we so often just say yes to self, yes to me, and no to your ways. Father, thank you that we have a King who's walked this road who's walked this road to the uttermost, even to the place of utter shame and death. Father, please help us, we pray, to not be ashamed of him, but to give up the whole world in order that we might follow him. Teach us what it means in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, We're going to sing um, a song. I think we'll stay seated, because in some ways I'd love us... um, these words, are, they're great words. I don't know how well you know this song, um, but they're great. you'll notice that they're great words following on from the um, sermon. So why don't, just as we sit, either feel free to join in and sing.